Welcome to the Upside Podcast, powered by Upside Global and hosted by Julian Blinn, founder and CEO of Upside Global. The Upside Podcast is listened to weekly by over 6,000 sports and tech executives from all sports leagues and teams in the United States and around the world. Julian has been developing technologies for professional sports teams for over 10 years and has worked for major tech companies along with sports tech startups. In each episode, Julian interviews global leaders in sports to share knowledge on emerging technology in the sports industry and how these technologies can help improve the performance of individuals and organizations both on and off the playing field. And now here's your host, Julian Blinn. So this week we had the honor to interview again a group of sports performance executives. So first we have Alex Pianosi, the strength and conditioning coach for the Pittsburgh Penguins, a top NHL team. So welcome back, Alexi. Thanks for having me, Julian. Great. Thank you, Alexi, for being here. Uh, then we have Karam uh, Adamdani, the head of the therapist for the CF Montreal, the top MLS team. So, uh, Karam, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I wish we were a top team, though. <laughs> you are in my eyes. So. Soon. Soon. <laughs> soon. Soon. We're working uh, on Yep. And then we have uh, Abdul Sila, uh, a world-class, you know, high-performance coach, uh, who's worked with athletes like Serena Williams, Amy Ozaka, Sloan Stevens. Uh, so, hey, welcome back, uh, Abdul. Thank you, Julian. Thanks for having me here on this panel today. No problem. Thanks, Abdul. And then we have uh, Pierre Barrieux, an experienced high-performance director in the MLS and the Premier League. Uh, he's also a FIFA expert. So welcome back, Pierre. Hi, everybody. Great. Thank you, Pierre. And then we have uh, Adam Quinkley, uh, an experienced athletic trainer in the MLS. NFL as well as the U.S. Uh, soccer national team. So welcome back, Adam. Thank you. I'm excited to be back with you all. Great. So, hey, uh, guys, what I want to talk about today is a couple of our topics. Uh, first, I want to talk about the emergence of uh, athletes, right, hiring their own staff, you know, strength coaches, fitness coaches, uh, their own chef, and so on. It's becoming a trend uh, in a number of leagues. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And then we'll talk about uh, athletes' data access and ownership. Uh, you know, more and more these days, the athletes want to get ownership of the data. They want to get access to it. So we'll talk about that. Uh, and then we'll talk about the emergence of next generation biomarkers, right? There's a number of devices that measure things like electrolytes, uh, lactate, cortisol. So love to get your, your take on that. And then we'll talk about the best technology that you've seen, that you've come across out there. Love to get your, your feedback on that. Uh, and then a hot topic also is uh, the emergence of LiDAR technology, right? So LiDAR has been used for uh, self-driving cars, but there's a number of uh, companies using LiDAR almost like a, as a replacement of GPS. So love to get your, your take on that. And then the last topic is about the return, right, of uh, Rafa Nadal and Naomi Osaka. So uh, it'd be great to get your your take on, uh, on them and how well they're going to do this year. That sounds good for everybody? Yeah. Great. So, hey, the first topic I wanted to cover, right? Uh, there's a, a theme called uh, the theme, uh, the team behind the team, right? So there's the emergence of athletes hiring their own staff, right? Whether it's a private chef, their own strength coaches, physical therapists, fitness coaches uh, on the side, right? In addition to uh, the team that they play for. So, uh, you know, what are the benefits, right, for athletes to do that? Uh, do you think it's here to stay? And which leagues, in your opinion, are kind of ahead. So what I'm hearing, for example, is in the NBA and the NFL, it's pretty well established uh, for athletes to have their own uh, their own uh, staff. 
uh, in DMLS, I think it's kind of coming up now, uh, but I'd love to get your thoughts on, on that on that as well. Anybody wants to start? Sure, I'll go ahead. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, Julian, the, the, uh, this has been something uh, in the MLS for quite some time. So, yeah. and and I can I can firsthand talk about this because I uh, experienced it in 2015. So, summer of 2015, we had DDA Drogba join uh, our mm -hmm. team for a year and a half, and uh, with him joining our team um, came his own private. Um, uh, therapist yeah. along with his own chef now his chef was uh, at home dealing with all the stuff at home but the oh, hi can i say hi yeah. <laughs> hi yeah um sweetie i'm i'm on that's okay <laughs> sorry about that guys just uh school hasn't started yet yeah but um back back to back to didier uh, he had his own private therapist that had been working with him for over 20 years so uh throughout his entire career at chelsea uh he even followed him to galatasaray and uh, for a small stint in in china mm -hmm. and so uh, getting closer and closer to DA, I got exposed to the, this uh, therapist. And um, you know what? Me being the, the person that I, I just love learning stuff, I wanted to understand what is it about this guy in particular mm -hmm. that, that he's doing that none of us else can, can do. And so he was, a, he was a physical therapist and an osteopath. And uh, he had this global approach of treating Didier from um so he would treat his entire body uh, mm -hmm. whether it was msk whether it was uh neural whether it was uh you know craniosacral therapy uh, you name it he he even understood things about um how the vital organs like the liver the pancreas work and how they connect with what Didier is eating so some people could say, yeah, he's a charlestin and that he's just, you know, talking, talking to, has Didier's ear and so just feeds him stuff. But fact of the matter is, whatever he was saying, Didier was applying and uh, the, 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 the results speak for themselves in a sense where the guy comes in his first game with us, scores three goals, you know? So, and I mean, that's, to to not to talk about his illustrious career in Chelsea, along with his uh, you know run uh, with the Ivory Coast in the national team, et cetera, et cetera, and and so I, I really got to experience that firsthand. Uh, Didier would have me come to his house. I'd watch what the therapists do. The therapist would teach me stuff. So you, you know. Uh, so it really helped him. Yeah. yeah and that's, you feel like this is not something you guys could provide in your team. Exactly. I mean, especially with the longevity, because the guy would be at DDA's house for about three to five hours. Now, you need three to five hours of therapy yeah. every, every day for X amount of days. I don't think so. But, you know, it's again, it's open to 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 debate, open open for discussion. He he. The results follow. And that's that's all that matters, right? Results. So, I I can say that I did learn a, a great deal from from the guy, and uh, I I personally think that it is here to stay. We can see it in uh, in Miami. I've had firsthand conversations with 
uh, their head athletic therapist telling me that he's got uh, five different top name guys who all have their own uh, guys that are coming in and working in. You're talking talking about Kai at Inter Miami? Okay. Correct. Yeah. So, so this is, this is, uh, for me, it is something to stay. It has emerged a lot for a long time in the MLS. And for me, it's here to stay. The more money they make, the more they're going to spend on themselves. I mean, would, take LeBron James for an example. Would you he say spent, the majority of the players can afford that or just a few? I think it's just a few okay. for now. But as as the MLS grows and as the other leagues grow and they make more and more money, they will start spending on themselves because they realize that this is what generates the money and they want to keep this in tip-top shape. Mm-hmm. So that's my take on it. Makes sense. Uh, thank you, Karam. Anybody else? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll add on to that. I think uh, a lot of things to digest, both from the question and kind of what Karam said. Um, I feel like it's not quite as popular of a thing in the National Hockey League, um, mm-hmm. at least during the season, mm-hmm. in the off season for sure. You know, everybody has their strength and conditioning coach, their uh, nutritionist, their manual therapist, soft tissue, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and I think that kind of the second layer of that question is how does that team integrate with the players team during the season? Um, you know, depending on your sport, depending on your league, you might be with your team for 11 of the 12 months and you have a ton of control with that player, or you might be with them for four months and they're on their own for a much longer period of time. And then, you know, are you able to mesh with that player's team away from your team? Are those, you know, therapies aligned to the same goals, the nutritional practices, the body composition goals, performance, you know, tactical things, are those aligned? And I think that's going to become a, a pretty big challenge moving forward is how to, how to align with the in-season team, with the off-season team, at least in the, in the National Hockey League. But um, similar to what Karam said, I think, you know, players that have the financial resources to do that are you know there's a lot of great therapists out there who do a variety of different skills and techniques and they can help a variety of different players a lot of times these guys i think are paying for the convenience of this guy comes to my house this guy is available 24 7 i am first on the table whenever i want and you know that's a huge selling point uh for them and obviously that's the one thing i think teams try to hire the best strength conditioning coaches therapists everything they can but the one thing you can't guarantee in a team setting of 10 players, 20 players, or 70 players in the NFL, for example, you can't guarantee that someone's going to get uh, first on the table or you're always going to have a free hand when you have a full team that you need to cater to. So um, I, I agree with Karam. I think it's here to stay, but I think uh, the future questions will be more around how do you integrate the players' team with their in-season you know, main team. I think that's going to be uh, really interesting moving forward. And, and to that point, Alex, I know, for example, Bill Burgos, what he does with D'Lo, you just go and meet him in certain cities, right? Throughout the year, you're in the off season, he's always with him most of the time. But yeah. throughout the year, just go and meet him, you know, yeah. several times a year, I guess. Um, you like to think you have practitioners on all sides who are open to working with each other, communicate well, and have the athlete's best interest and, and goals in mind. But if, you know, I have seen it in at least in hockey and some other sports where players' off season coach wants them to do A, B, and C, and the team wants them to do D, E, and F, and then you practice all summer to do A, B, and C, and then you stink at DENF when you come to the season and then that player ends up suffering just because of a miscommunication yeah. between whether it's the coaches, the management, the therapist, the strength coaches, whoever it is. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I could see that. And anybody else? Thank you, Alexi. Anybody else? Has any thoughts? I can go ahead. 
um, obviously it's mostly food soccer I'll be talking about here. The uniqueness of our sport is that we 11 months out of 12 in season, you know, so there's not really any off season coach. Um, more and more, the more, I mean, the higher you go, the more money, the more money they make, the more you can, the likelihood is that they will have the individual staff. Going back to what Karam was saying, so Adi Bry in LA, he came with his physio. David Beckham back in the day didn't even come with his strength coach or physio. That was interesting. Um, but in England last year, I would I would say 40% of the players had uh, a personal fitness coach and off physio, you know, because these are the two, when it comes to, it's easier to integrate some treatment than to get a workout that comes in addition mm -hmm. of some of the workouts we do. So, so the challenges are there. I think it's here to stay. I'm personally, I understand the logic behind it. I think this is the way it's going to be more and more. And, and to be fair, it makes sense. It makes sense. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's hard to, uh, you know, we had every coach came to us and then we, uh, you know, we explained what we're doing. They said what we're doing. We try to make it compatible. There's a, because the, the players, especially the older they get, they have their own habits, you know, and there are things mm -hmm. that don't, they're not willing to compromise. So there's a lot of psychological that comes into play. And, uh, and, and that's the way it's going to be. That's the way it's going to be. So the, yeah. the last point I want to make is there's also a, an insurance component, you know, so you, the question is always, yeah, do you want to completely integrate this? staff meaning are they on site every day at the club uh, and if that's the case you know um, who employs them or are they people that work strictly you know at the player's house or a different mm -hmm. facility you know and and that as it goes so these are the these are the, the the problems you run into if that the club or sometimes can they come to the club to use the club's facilities so this is where the insurance chapter comes around so there are more challenges than just integrating uh, their workouts into the club workouts. Yeah. And has there been instances where an actor was working out with a, uh, you know, a strength coach or somebody and it, they got hurt to your point about the insurance, they got hurt working with that particular individual, then who is responsible? Exactly. And there's been instances, you know, whether it's not acute injuries, it could be overused because it's being done in addition to what we do. This is why integrating everything to start with is a must. Um, but yeah, it happened. It's happened. So okay. must be fun. No, yeah, really. I've, I'd like I'd like to bring up the one of the points that Chrome kind of touched on uh, as a practitioner, whether we're in the sports science side of things or the actual physiotherapy is that the individual provider isn't necessarily educated or has experience and can do things that the club staff can't but the limiting factor between the two that kind of alexi alluded to is the time and that when you have somebody that can work on one person for two three hours get well i'll take an hour a single hour and address some of the complaints or concerns that aren't as urgent, such as, you know, if a footballer walks in and has a sore neck and they pop on the table and are getting some soft tissue work done on their neck, when someone's waiting for like hamstring treatment in a soccer setting, that that environment generally isn't, isn't curated or, or accessible for that neck soft tissue treatment. 
um, it's not open to that really. And so when you have someone that can then address it and focus fully on one individual patient, um, you're able to read research on that. You're able to have conversations based on this one direction of a goal rather than you're managing a hamstring injury at the same time that someone has a concussion, there's a mental health case that you're working with and an ankle sprain, like all these different things. And some of these staffs only have, you know, what's the, the MLS requirement is that you have, I think three athletic trainers. And, and I don't know about the PT mm -hmm. side, but you obviously have a head team position mm -hmm. and all that stuff, but one, one PT. So you have four people um, at minimum and you have anywhere from, you know, 30 plus people on the first team and it i've i found from working on both sides of this that uh it's very very helpful from a team setting to have an outside therapist or performance coach or even an on-field coach to be there to support the staff there's just a a moment of realization of kind of ego between all parties involved of we're all here for the same thing it's to have the athlete on field as much as possible and to be as successful successful as possible in turn winning as many games as possible but if the outside provider doesn't fully understand what we're maybe doing on field and like the training week of let's say a midweek session is a very heavy overload and that's the day that they decide to do explosive movements in the gym, you know, post training at home, that's a day that it may end up causing a, a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And so having, I think, a principle or a plan in place between both parties to become more accessible and a little easier to work with between either side will be helpful. Um, but I, I think it's important to understand from all parties that the person outside is not trying to take the job of the head athletic trainer at the club. There's a reason why they're working privately, you know, and the head athletic trainer or whomever, if they want to work personally with the person outside, they have the skill set to do it and they can. It's just a different business model and a different treatment process. So it takes additional time to understand the treatment process, but it's also really important to have down and organize, you know, do you, it's a, a different tangent, but do you give the, the outside provider access to like the same EMR so they can document because mm -hmm. they're treating the athlete, you know, or is it a blind, they're sending a weekly email or whatever it is. That's where I've seen the biggest uh, concerns and, and issues come up is with uh, lack of communication because nothing is ever structured and, and debated because realistically the person or therapist, whomever is going to be there because the player requests it and they're funding it themselves. It really has nothing to do with the club. It, it's really just a convenience or a, a good grace for the outside provider to talk to the club. You know, like they don't really need to. Uh, so it's, just, it's a, it's a big, big communication uh, thunderstorm at times. But when you, address things early on and set a standard of, of what will work best for all parties involved. I've, I've seen that work out pretty smoothly. Nice. Uh, thank you, Adam. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'll chime in a little bit because I, um, I actually experienced that with Aaron and, um, and the Yankees when, mm -hmm. um, after I, I started working with Aaron on the 2017, 
I mean, they've seen drastic progress when he went back into season. He played the most games that he's ever played in his career. So the athletic trainer and myself, the GM, made sure that we had communication. And so off season, he called me to let me know what's going on with him, what he would like to see, and like what way he would like to come back in and all that. So we had that communication. And you have some athletes that actually um, sometimes don't like to work with the club um, 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 faculties. So what they would do, like Aaron is, is that person, right? They want their own guy, but then at the same time, the team also wants to be involved. So the goal is how do you, how do you mesh the two? And that's what we're able to do. So like when Aaron is having problems, they'll call me to try and see how they can communicate with him. So mm -hmm. to me, that's why it's very important. Like we had that connection to where I was communicating with the Yankees. Like sometimes I was traveling, I'll be traveling with, with um, Naomi. And then they'll call me and say, well, Aaron is having this problem. He's not listening. Or he's not doing this. And then I'll call him to see what's going on. He would intervene to facilitate conflicts, or is that what you're saying? No, like what's um just basically he's just one of those guys if he's not comfortable, like you have players that are not comfortable with other people or not comfortable with what you're doing. So mm -hmm. then, or they don't know how to directly because the connection is when you have the one on one with like let me say someone like myself, the out the contractor that the person put their trust in. It is up to that individual also to help the club out to make sure, like, how can I get through th this person? How can I be? How am I going to be able to communicate with him? Right. So you have you have situations like that. I think in the direction that this is going in, I believe it is going to be because clubs now once they're paying these guys a lot of money, so they expect you to come in shape. They expect you to come fully ready and healthy. Right. And they don't want to really, um, they don't want the, the product to come back trying to get in shape or trying to get healthy. What, um, like, let me say spring ball or um, um, off season is starting, off season is about to start and season is about to start. And now you're trying to get yourself in shape because that's how injuries usually happen. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, in tennis, you don't see that as much because you're part of the staff, right? Yes. yes. Although I'm sure some, do they sometimes take extra men? It's one staff, right? Yeah, mo most of the time, like you, you want a whole staff. You want not like I'm a high performance coach. I always let them know. I don't know. Yeah, I know a little bit about being a physiotherapist, but that's not what I went to school for. That's not my. That's not my profession. That's not my lane. So you need to hire someone that will focus on you that can do these things right. You know, so they, the thing about it, like now everybody has a physio, everybody has a high performance coach and they have the coach. So you have a full team traveling with you. You're talking about tennis? Yes. Yeah. Right. And then in like with an Aaron case, like players from other clubs, now what's happening, like I told them, you need me, then you need a physio. You cannot go with that. I'm not going to do physio work that's not going to happen right so you need a physio so by the time the club gets him he's already far ahead of where he should be at and that communication like um that communication is key someone like the the contractor communicating with the club saying okay this is what we did off season and this is where he's at and this is what his body was responding to so then from there you get the result that you want
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Abdul. Um, hey, uh, any other feedback before we jump on the next topic? Yeah, quickly for me, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's pretty easy. Not I shouldn't say that it's easier to integrate the treatment side of things, the physio side of things, you know, yes, too much treatment. Sometimes it's, uh, not necessary, not needed, but too much treatment is not going to hurt you. You know, it gets tricky when it comes to, it gets tricky when it comes to strength and conditioning and things like this, you know, if I take the example of, of the Premier League, for example, we have literally heavy schedule. We have. Everything is planned. We have staff, you know. So, the players that is is, is club regiment, you know, is club uh, program. There's not much room for anything else, you know. Now, that's why ideally you would want all the people on site in the, under the same roof, and this is where there, there wouldn't be any conflicts because you'd be able to adjust, you know, on a daily basis. You don't have that. You don't have this control, and this is where it gets tricky because we can talk about communication as much as you want. You know, you can have you can have which which is the case a WhatsApp list with every player's staff sending them all the numbers. You know, you're not in control. You're not in control. So uh, it's it's the way it's, it's the way it is. It's the way it's gonna be. Um, but it's still a, a challenge in uh, in high level soccer for sure because of the eleventh month out of twelve. Yeah. So one last thing I wanted to add. It's important to distinguish between a qualified person that's doing this stuff and what i've also seen in the past um the spiritual animal i don't know if you guys have heard of this but, but i've had like my fair share of dealing with high profile players who have their spiritual animal with them standing next to them during training or like and then that's when upper management has to intervene and say okay listen we get what you're trying to do or whatnot but like can you leave your spiritual animal or Pikachu at home kind of thing? You know what I mean? So. Well, uh, so, yeah. So, hey, well, thank you guys. So the next topic I want to cover is, uh, you know, there's this trend, right? So where athletes wants to get access or get better access to their own data, right? So there's a couple of approaches to that. Sometimes you got apps, right? Pushing data to the athletes. For example, Orico has this app for athletes where athletes can actually check out their data, their sleep data, nutrition, everything, right? And then sometimes you've got athletes using their own wearable device uh, or, or other products. So um, you, you think that this trend of having um, an athlete that wants to check its data, do you think that's here to stay? And where do you think it's gonna head? Uh, you know, where are we heading moving forward? Anybody? Uh, sure, I'll go. Um, yeah. I, I think I think we're going to keep seeing more of that. Um, I, I think there's definitely a, a you know a bit of a split between athletes. Some love to see their data and they love to dive really deep into it and want to know all about different things. And others cannot handle even seeing how many how many minutes they slept last night. It gives them too much anxiety. They can't think. They can't play. So you know, I don't think I think you'll always have those people, and that's fine. And then you'll always have the people who want to talk about the really deep physiology stuff with you that you're like, wow, okay, we can go, you know, that deep if you want to. So there'll always be a bit of a difference mm -hmm. there, but I think the common thread between everybody is these elite athletes all want to get better. They're all trying to find that edge. They're trying to find a competitive advantage over other people vying for their job and their opponents. So if the data, whether it's sleep monitoring, you know, uh, whether it's their on ice or, or on field metrics, whether it's GPS, heart rate, things like that, 
if you know it's sold to them and they believe that it can help them, they're going to want access to that data. And um, I think you're going to see more and more people wanting access to that data as technology gets better and people find more and more competitive edges. Um, but I think that's probably going to be balanced by the by the business side of things that wants to use that data for marketing and and, and other purposes. And I think you know much like data, everybody else has their own, own data. They give permission for somebody else to use it. Um, I think they sign on a trusting relationship and sometimes in a, in a formal agreement that this strength coach, this therapist, this doctor will see my data, but nobody else, you know, in, in that instance. But um, I think, you know, you know, you might see more conversations around data sharing within larger organizations or leagues or federations as they start to, you know, leverage that into things like contracts, things like, you know, uh, someone's heart rate flashing on the screen as they're running down the, the pitch on a, on a breakaway or something. And it's okay. Well, you are allowed to do that. How does that fit into, um, you know, the, the monetization of the game? So I think that'll be a, a hurdle to come over if we're going to keep investing in new technology and have more players use new technology. But I think athletes wanting to see their data and wanting to get that edge is, is here to stay. All right. Especially if that's your one about the contract, right? If the, the team realize, you know, what well, the data is not looking good for that athlete. And he, you know, he's not trying to negotiate a new contract and it's like, it's not looking good. You know, so they might use that against him. I don't know if that ever happened to you guys, but you know, that's going to be concerned. concerned that's right? an example of people wearing, you know, a heart rate monitor who have different responses and not necessarily good or bad, but one guy's heart rate's through the roof. One guy's heart rate's low and coach is yelling at the screen. This guy's not working hard. The guy with a low heart rate and, you know, he doesn't know the context, yeah. doesn't know. And then. You know, if that interpretation is fed, you know, and that percolates up to somebody who's got some decision-making powers, and next thing you know, the player's pissed off because, hey, they're saying I'm not trying in practice. What's going on here? And that's where, you know, if it's not managed correctly and, and it's not both the relationship and the actual data itself, then, you know, you run in, you can potentially run into a lot of problems that really don't need to be there if it's handled appropriately. Yeah, Thank, thanks, Alexi. Anybody else wants to comment on that? Um, I, I uh, echo Alexi's uh, comments. It's here to stay. Uh, personally, our, our guys uh, have they they we use GPS primarily for for all all of their metrics, and so what we do is we um, we take the data, we print it, and we put it on a board, and we have the players. Uh, look at the data. As a matter of fact, it creates this camaraderie and this uh, just fun challenge between the guys going, uh, Haha, I ran more than you or I ran faster than you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We also do the, the same thing from our end with all our uh, Valda testing. So North Bore scores and, and uh, force frame scores, as well as our jump scores. Uh, and we just put them put them in the gym and just have them take a, take cracks at, at other players and it's all fun. Gamification, 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 and just creating this camaraderie. You know, it it creates this synergy within the uh, the team and they poke fun at each other and but they they understand that it is for you know for their well being. Um, we we. Um, We've tried to push uh, the other wearables like uh, Aura and uh, Whoop and, and whatnot, but uh, the compliance portion of things seems to be, um, you know, uh, quite hard in a sense where if they buy in, then they'll do it. And sometimes even if they bought in, they won't. Or they like it, it would be like a 
sporadic thing. Oh, I forgot to charge it kind of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you've got some other guys that they'll put it on their dog, and uh, you'll you'll see dog metrics kind of stuff, kind of thing. But yeah, in in my opinion, it's here to stay, and it's going to grow. All right. Thanks, Karam. Anybody else? Pierre, um, Abdul. Yeah, not much else that's been said uh, already. You know, some guys are into it, some guys are not as much into it. I mean, more and more, it's part of the culture. And it's here to stay, and you know it's their numbers, so they can do pretty much whatever. Going back to using numbers for contract negotiations, I've never been part of a scenario this extreme. I can see this happening, but again, it's not about numbers; it's about you know who reads the number and the experts behind it. So I, I don't think we have to spend too much time and energy on this scenario. But it's here to stay, and uh, it's part of our environment, and and it's going to be. Um, going to be um, more and more the case, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Adam, I, Abdul, yeah. I think that having some of this wearable technology, sure, in a team setting, it's becoming more talked about and, and more accessible for the athlete. I've actually really appreciated some of these wearable technologies being more accessible to the general public and for the athlete to use in their own setting in the off season or, you know, for the, like, like a, a tennis athlete, for instance, training on their own in the past, all of the tech has been like within a, a team setting, but now having these one-off um, chips or trackers or whatever it is for the athlete or for the, the practitioner to use on their own, I think is, is really helpful that you don't need to be in a team setting. Um, and obviously that's for the people that choose to look into it and use it. And then if you don't, then, you know, it doesn't really matter, but it's the accessibility and painting the picture around what the data means is really important in, in either side. You know, you share some information as someone shared with the, the heart rate and a GM, just, they don't know what any of the data means. They just look at this one number and is it, is it higher? They're working harder. If it's lower, they're not working hard. Um, so making sure the, the context of this information when it is shared um, is, is a part of the picture. And, and do you feel like, you know, I remember when COVID hit, right? I remember uh, seeing like, um, like the Real Madrid squad, right? Working out remotely or Tottenham Spurs working out remotely. And do you feel like the COVID might be accelerating trend because the players had to work out at home? Uh, they say, look, here is some devices to use. We'll monitor you remotely. I mean, has he had any impact or no? I, w I would say that it it shifted the responsibility onto the athletes more than what a club could lean onto their athlete for prior to COVID, where there was not really a point of, you know, you could give out some of the wearable stuff in the offseason and, and Karam's experience is yeah. true. Um, where this case, it was really the only way of communication of the numbers. Uh, so I think that it maybe forced a hand, um, but I don't. I wouldn't say that means that it worked. Mm -hmm. But it it yeah. made people do it. I think a little more quickly than than they would have otherwise. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Abdul. So maybe Abdul in tennis, right? Is it pretty common for tennis players to? To look at the data, uh, are they very sensitive to that, or they're just not? 
Abdul? Yes, it's more like, uh... It's actually more like the coaches, right? It's the coaches that actually try and um, if the coaches like it, the athlete is gonna like it. Like for instance, Naomi, Naomi don't she? I call she. I call it information overload when it comes to her. She doesn't like too much information. She doesn't want to know too much because then like uh, she start getting anxiety and she start overthinking. She's not a thinker. She just reacts. And then you have some people like. Uh, uh, um, let me say, um, Bianca. Bianca loves information. Bianca loves looking at these data, and right? she'll enjoy it and she'll read it because she's that person, right? So it all depends on the coach. And then you have some coaches that don't like it, period. And like sometimes we have discussion about it because sometimes you cannot predict humans, right? You don't want to put um, human beings are unpredictable. So they also you also think about that because the data that they try and come up with is about you know um, habits, like tendencies and stuff like that. So it really depends on the players. I mean the coaches, right, and the players. I guess if you like it or not. Yes. Yes. Um, that makes sense. Uh, now, uh, hey, the, the next topic I want to cover, right? So the, for the past, I would say ten years, right? There's been the emergence of biomarkers, right? So. Uh, you see the emergence of de wearable devices to measure hydration, uh, electrolyte, and I seeing devices to measure lactate, cortisol, glucose level. Um, do you feel like it's becoming uh, there's a appetite from the teams uh, for those devices, and and also what types of biomarkers in the future do you think uh, we'll be able to uh, to see in the market? Right, maybe other types of biomarkers. I don't know. Uh, what what is your take on this whole biomarker uh, thing? Anybody? Um, I'm not an expert at, at this whole biomarker thing, and it's. I feel like it's a relatively new uh, science, like you said, in the last 10 years. Uh, but I have developed a personal interest in it, not related necessarily to the team, but, but just me personally. Uh, and, and I feel like that interest uh, really grew uh, once I, I started tuning into and listening to um, Huberman's uh, podcast, um, and and uh, it actually brought me across this book called um, Outlive um, by uh, Peter Atia, who, who talks about uh, the uh, evolving of, of medicine from medicine 1.0 to 2.0, where were more reactive and and looking at symptoms and then sort of plugging plugging the, the the appropriate medication to sort of mask those symptoms without looking at the root cause of the of the problem and uh, now we're we're starting to evolve into medicine 3.0 and that's where all this sort of comes into play but it's it's so new it's it's so um novice that doctors uh, sort of shy away from it because they're like okay well, I, I i don't feel comfortable they you know you don't know what you don't know and so they they don't want to dive into it and, and start like investigating because they feel like they're going to be the black sheep uh out there but two two um uh, two big companies that uh, i've personally worked with uh to look at this stuff were one of them is based in LA, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Inside Tracker, 
Mm-hmm. And um, the other one is um, CFOX Health, and uh, they basically you you know you do a brick blood uh, blood samples that you send yeah, yeah. you send their way, and they also do uh, mouth swabs for uh, hormonal panels, and and I'm you know I'm thinking that these are really important things for us, not just from a team perspective and and for a performance perspective. But us as individuals to start looking at what's going on under the hood, and and the best way to do that is regular blood work and and hormonal panels. I feel like medicine uh, medicine and, and doctors today negate the whole hormonal portion of things. They just don't really look at it so much. You don't need it until you really need it. You know, until you reach this age category. It's like. Uh, trying to put a, a, a square in a circle font kind of thing. You know what I mean? One size. Yeah. So that's well, I, from what I've seen, like there, there's a couple of companies, right? Sometimes they'll do, yeah, they do the blood analysis and some, maybe some athletes don't like that, uh, but there's also like those patches, right? Using microfluidics to measure your sweat, electrolyte. And then uh, you can also analyze the, the saliva, right? Like you said. So there's different, you know, levels, right? Of uh, how you want to do it. Um, but I think it's super interesting, right? Uh, like you said, it's almost like people used to say like the, your blood, uh, yeah, I think your blood is a reflection of your, whatever your health or whatever. Uh, there was an expression for that, but, um, anybody else has any thoughts on that? I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm also not an expert, but to me, this is one thing that I'm really interested in because especially in real time for athletes, because these, uh, these, these athletes are high performance athletes, right? And yeah. they are constantly putting their body in they're constantly putting their body in um, in in stress mode. So it'd be good for any one of us, especially the folks that are responsible for them, to actually know in real time what what where their levels are to um, to prevent the injuries, to prevent a lot of these things, fatigue. And I, that's what actually for me, this is the most important of them all. Is having some having um, these biomarkers actually um, available and accessible to um, to everyone to make sure to see what's happening um, with these high performance athletes. But, but to that point, Abdul, right? So if you look at the NBA, for example, they don't allow the use of wearable device, right, to measure hydration in real time. It's not allowed, yes. right? Uh, and I think in the MLS, yes, you can. I think you can uh, use wearables. It's up to the players, I believe. Um, but I think the challenge is to get this real time is depending on the leagues, depending on the regulation towards wearables, it, you know, you're not, not going to get it real time. That's a problem. Uh, but I think in the ideal world, you want to get it real time. In training, yes, you yeah. probably can. But during the games, there's challenging depending on the leagues, right? Yes. And I, I, I believe eventually it's going to lead to that. It's going to lead because it, at the end of the day, the bottom line, right, if they once they get to the point, I'm not, I don't know how long it will take, but once they realize, okay, you know, these these are our product out here, and we need our product on center stage performing, so we can draw in the money. And I believe eventually, like everything else, it's going to change. It's just uh, it's just a matter of time. I don't know if we're going to be around to see it, but it's just a matter of time. But let me ask you, in the ATP, right? In the ATP, it still don't allow the user wearables device gains, right? Even when you have a coach, I remember like Serena was talking to Moratoglu and they, she got penalized for that, you know what I mean? So yeah. you have a wearable device that giving you real-time data, or these, you know, these guys getting dehydrated, 
is that considered quote cheating you know what i mean if some other athletes don't have the same technology you know what i mean so yeah when do you pull the line and i mean like we've seen it especially at um at some of these summer tournaments um with um, these players cramping and cannot perform and sometimes they pull out so then the fans have to go home right so it's just that if it's that costing them, I believe they're going to have to change things around. Do you think it will evolve? Huh? Do you think it will change? Do you think they would adopt those soft technologies yeah. to get real-time feedback? Yeah. I yeah. believe they will. Eventually they will. Because they, you can see a lot of things changing based on the health. I mean, we're not where we were 20, 20 years ago where, you know, the athlete is just the athlete. They look at you as, you know, indestructible, right? So if you have concussion, who cares? Go out there and play again. Now it's like the new generation athletes are, are, are a little bit more aware and self-awareness and also make business decisions. So because like you can see sometimes, even if the athlete is not, can perform and everything is okay, sometimes they hold themselves back from performing because they, they feel they are at risk. Yeah. Well, so one thing I would say is I was talking to an NBA team one time and I asked them, I said, in the NBA, it's not allowed, right? And the comment from the team was, I guarantee you one thing, when this, they would start allowing it because of sports betting. Because it's not about so much about the privacy of the data. It's more about how do we make money with this? Now, you may agree or disagree, but the comment was, hey, once they allow sports betting and use the data, then they allow it because they might, if they get a share of it, market, you know, revenue share. You know, yes. that's kind of an extreme, but is that the way it's going to go? I don't know. Right. So anyway, uh, anybody else has any thoughts on, I guess, biomarkers and how to make it real time? I have a, I have a thought. Uh, how to make it real time, I don't know, but I think this is where the, uh, the next chapter would be for all these companies to, to make it because that's what we need, you know? And then the challenge that we had, um, that we have on the uh, on the practical side, is uh, do you this, do you the team? You know, is it just for one player? Is this for the whole team? Is it every day? Is just when when you did it? You know, yeah. it, it's hard to it's hard to uh, to have the number make sense if it's just to use it like punctually here and there. Which even if I think in a in a professional setup, this is what's what's needed. So. Yeah. You know, so I've been around Red Bull Leipzig, who was doing cortisol every day. Um, is it practical for players to prick their ear? And uh, yeah, it's it's a good feedback from from a from, from a coach standpoint. But is it worth the players going through the hassle? I don't know. So you always have to juggle. You always have to balance uh, convenient what you get for the money you yeah. pay. Is it is it the norm? Is it just you know? So, but there, there is obviously there is interest. There is. It, this is interesting feedback. Um, but once you have answered this question, is how you actually efficiently use it uh, on a daily basis. It's it's where it becomes an art. And when you were with the uh, Leipzig, was it blood sample or was it through a wearable device? Yeah. No, not blood sample, but I was visiting. I wasn't with them. So okay. it's interesting to get cortisol feedback. Again, do you need every day? I don't think if I was in position, I don't think I'd do this every day. But when you see players and when you get to the bottom of things, if you have access to uh, to, uh, to easy testing and you can verify nutrition on re real time, verify the causal real time, um, verify the hormonal 
level. I, call, I mean, cortisol is one of them, but um, everything will turn, then that will be great. Great, but that means that you have this structure in place. So, and that means that you have the financial asset to have all this structure in place for using it punctually. So, yeah, there's actually a company called Gia Sensors. They have this like MX3. You have the the strip you put into your mouth, analyze the saliva, and you get your cortisol level right away. Uh, okay. So I think it's kind of so that's coming up on the market. Uh, it's not a patch, but you just put the strip in your mouth, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Right. So you got to read it. That's more useful. Yeah. Uh, anybody else? Uh, Adam, um, Alexi, anybody else? Yeah, I, so I'll just say just quickly, uh, I, I agree with Pierre. I think there, there, there's a lot of great technology. Are you going to get to a point? I mean, you could test 35 different variables every day, you know, a minute each, which is pretty quick. But are you going to put all 35 in every day? No. I think a common theme of all of our calls, of, you know, the past couple of months is how do you integrate things in practically? And, you know, it's probably more interesting for us sports scientists than it is for the players themselves. But once we feel like we, we understand the relationship we're looking at, whether it's cortisol fluctuations, heart rate changes, HRV, whatever it is, if you get a little bit of a better understanding by using a wearable device, and then you can, you know, drop it, make some actionable change and then drop it from your, you know, daily collection and use the information you gain yeah. from, then I think that's, you know, then you can move on to something else and you're only doing one, maybe two things a day. And that's kind of the nature, I think, of the practice and less towards, you know, how many different wearables can we test in game and, you know, how many things can we do? Can we prick, prick these guys with before we, you know, they say no, it's, uh, it's how we can integrate it. And I think it's going to be kind of a, a rise and fall. Eventually, you'll start doing too much stuff and you'll have to pull back more and more and you'll settle back around the, the, the middle value or the median, I think. But Alexia, are you more concerned about the fact that you might have used like different devices to do those multiple measurement or? Yeah, well, no, not, not necessarily multiple devices. I just, I think multiple, you're always going to be confined by time, logistics, and both in terms of what you can collect, but then what you can action, make action on. And I think, you know, the nature of sports science is trying to figure out what are the most actionable items, test those items, and then try to make change yeah. with them. I mean, I'd love to have a player be perfectly hydrated, perfectly slept, perfect HRV, perfect cortisol levels, testosterone, growth hormone, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you, you, you kind of pick one that you think you can reliably measure and affect and then try to do your best with that. How that evolves over the next 10, 20 years with technology will be very interesting. But I think ultimately, you know, the, the game is played on the pitch or on the ice or on the court. And you want to prepare them as much as you can for when they get on that field of play. And then once they get on that field of play, let these guys go do what they're, you know, the best in the world at, and let, let them go play some football, let them go play hockey, let them go play, you know, and uh, prepare them beforehand and practice days, things like that. And also, do you have the staff to look at all those metrics every day? Yeah, it's a lot of data to comb through and figure out, and it's it's a lot. You know, we, we, we do maybe three to four different metrics or, or, you know, collectibles, wearables, things like that, and you know, even that's that's a lot to, I think, collect, analyze, make action, communicate to players, communicate to coaches, communicate to management. So, you know, we're actively trying to pare down and become as efficient, get good data, but be efficient with it. Um, and so adding more things is usually something that, like, we, we look at, but we look at very carefully and cautiously. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, maybe, Adam, did you want to add something? Or? Pierre, did you have something? Yeah, yeah, because when Alexi mentioned, you know, perfect AGH, perfect cortisol, perfect, I mean, we we all interested in this, but that also means because these are individual numbers, it means that you have baselines, you need baselines. So if you pick mm -hmm. that topic, then you have to baseline the team. 
Yeah. So again, it's time, it's time, money, and then and then you know, is it worth it? Yeah. Yeah, and and um, I'll just finally add. Uh, it's important for the athlete to understand the purpose of it, and it's if it's from the team perspective to just collect data, then time and time again they feel is just kind of used lab rats uh without much personal gain and so i i actually think and i've seen this a, a handful of times where the private care team are the people that are actually doing this testing and implementation and seeing things from the athlete individually and i i don't think we're at the point yet where that's then transitioned into the the team setting but I do think obviously the if it's a, a fingerprint test or even a, a traditional blood draw, you can do something like that at home when you have a, some extra time, and then it's solely for the athlete's health and wellness and gain, and not necessarily the team, uh, you know, who, and whose best interest is, is the testing in. Because right now, the the best interest seems to be it's the tech company that's trying to have this revolutionary science mm -hmm. and it's not based in, or it's generally not based in performance on field, on court, you know, athlete health. Uh, it's, it's trying to create a need that didn't exist. Yeah. Right. Um, hey, uh, thank you guys. The next question I wanted to talk about is that we've come across a lot of technologies, I don't know, for the past 10, 20 years, right? So, I'm sure you guys be bombarded by a lot of requests. You've seen a lot of technologies. So I guess my question to you is, of all the things that you've seen, what are the most interesting, innovative technology that you've seen in the world of performance? And why do you think it was so innovative? Anybody has any thoughts? And maybe there isn't. As something to get started, it's it's kind of a creative technology, but I thought an RPE scale was pretty revolutionary. When I came across that, coming from a athletic training background that didn't really speak about it, and then entering high performance and quantifying someone's physical exertion and, and fatigue, I thought was that was the first thing for me that I it was a question, a, a data point that we could then look up on a screen and make adjustments or modifications to the training or the rehab or, or whatever too. Um, it's pretty elementary, but I think that it's something that's implementable across all all spectrums of, of healthcare and performance. I, I found that pretty revolutionary. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Alexi, Pierre, Abdul Karam, you guys have any, any thoughts? I don't know how... I don't actually know when um, sort of 3D motion motion capture first came about or, or the full history of it, but um, I also recognize it's not the most practical thing in a larger setting out, kind of outside of the lab, but I think some of the work that was done at the uh, sports surgery clinic in Dublin now, you know, with uh, Enda King and Aspatar, looking at sort of three uh, the 3D biomechanics of cutting and changes of direction, I think is pretty cool. And, you know, our coach's eye sees a movement and how we want it to look and how we think we want to preferentially load, you know, the hip or the knee, the ankle, the tissue, whatever. But, you know, these guys kind of use that 3D motion tracking with really elite level soccer and rugby players to determine commonalities of, you know, 
movement patterns that overload tissues of the adductors and the abdomen and things like that. And I don't know how that gets scaled into the future, obviously, because 3D motion tracking is a pretty labor intensive process. But um, it was almost like you got some quantification of your coach's eye or the, the coach's eye that's been evolving over the past hundred years and for movement patterns that are preferential. So I think um, I think that's a pretty cool uh, pretty cool realization to, to watch sort of the forces be dissipated uh, or created very specifically using 3d motion capture yeah that's for sure um anybody else um, yeah. tim gabbett acute to chronic ratios mm -hmm. i think it revolutionized how we how we look at uh you know uh load management and keeping keeping the players safe provided obviously we we do it properly right because um we've got so many people that are like bash it but i i find that as a tool if, if you know how to use it then it could be very powerful in communicating proper information credible information to your to your coach for the coach to make the best possible decision you know it doesn't have to be like super, you know, super sophisticated, no. but simple, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pierre or Abdul, you guys have any uh, any thoughts? Uh, uh, yeah, I have thoughts. I don't. I'm not so sure it's going to be uh, adding much because uh, I go back to when there was no, you know, heart rate tracking, and then you know, then went for heart rate to GPS to individual feedback to subjective feedback to uh, objective feedback. So, so I think one. I mean, one, you know, um, yeah, we started, example for Karam is a good one, you know, we started tracking and the next thing you know, we are uh, we're periodizing thing and then Tim Garrett comes through the, with some theory about, you know, the, the spreading the workload, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, there hasn't been any, any technology that I would say is like, you know, revolutionary, but all of the one, but I agree with all the ones that have been mentioned so far. You know, lately, you know, obviously there's been more things done in the recovery area that, you know, before was just, you know, even before the cold bath, there was not much. So now you can individualize the recovery. That means many different technology. I like recently how we've been looking at isometric testing, you know, from baseline. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see, I couldn't single out one particular technology and I don't want to go too far ahead of the next topic because that's also to me where where there's more um, where the next there's more margin for uh, room for expansion and margin for better technology when it when it comes to tracking so I'm gonna yeah you wait for the next one uh Abdul have you come across in your world anything that was interesting I mean the um I'm just starting to get into this technology um, space. I mean, the one thing that um, I started, I used a while back was the quick board, which gave me um, information and actually just control environments where I'm able to actually um, watch and control the performance of the athlete and developing them in a way that more control and prevent um, while I'm still working on preventative um, programming, right? So that's about the only thing that I see for me in a way that um, opened my eyes. Yeah. And that's what, that's one of the things that started um, 
makes me actually look into the technology space more. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, hey, so which bring the next topic, um, I think Pierre, maybe you were alluding to that, but what I've seen, right? So GPS technology has been around for some long time, uh, but now we're seeing the emergence of, funny enough, later technology, which is used for self-driving cars like a Tesla, for example, uh, being used into product uh, to help to measure things like distance run, for example, there was this company called Skillcourt from Germany. Uh, they have this system where, uh, yeah, you can measure literally when you're doing uh, some drills and training using radar technology, which is you send a signal and it bounces back and it measures the distance. So uh, I think one of the themes that I've heard for this year is that some people believe that radar technology is even more accurate than GPS systems, uh, which is used by teams. You know, it's pretty common. So, do you would you agree with that statement, or do you think it's not it's not there yet? I haven't seen it, uh, but I would agree with the statement based on everything I've read. Um, yeah. This is why I'm more interested in that when it comes to the next next thing out there, next big thing, I think there's room for improvement when it comes to tracking and, and devices, whether it's smart fabric, whether it's, um, you know, different technology. I thought that visual tracking would have taken over GPS, to be honest with you right now. Yeah. Uh, it, it's on, it's not in this way. LiDAR would be, would be big because, you know, indoor, outdoor, uh, it seems to be more convenient. How would this materialize? You know, what do you have to wear? I don't know, but I, but I think there is more out there in the years to come than than the GPS for sure. And don't you think that because there's been I've heard right like a controversy about the accuracy of GPS measurements from one vendor to another, like they're not consistent. They're not always yeah, the same. It, yeah, but if you always keep the same one, then you know it doesn't really matter be fair you know you, it's you don't want you don't want to like the fight for accuracy i understand why but it, it shouldn't come out of cost i think it's more convenient you know you get yeah, yeah. you get it you get issue with signal and gps that you wouldn't get with lighter you know so again you need facilities that are equipped but on paper if you come up with a technology that is wearable uh, that you can use at your practice facility without being set up at you know, wherever you are in the world and it's going to be accurate then then you're going to this is this is the the gold mine right there in my eyes yeah no, you're right and there's more and more team adopting it actually and i think uh what's his name uh, courtois the, the goalkeeper for real madrid actually helped to co-found a technology like that from belgium uh that team now is yeah, using. and again and again i mean you know, if you don't have to wear a vest you know with the with a with the unit in it you know if it's yeah. just you know, it's out there already with the smart fabric but yeah, I think that there's there's definitely big room for improvement in that in that area, and it'd yeah. be adapted. You know, there'd be compliance if it's convenient. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, anybody has any thoughts on that? The all data technology. Have you tried? It? Have you guys tried that before or no? I've seen it, no. but not in the world of sports. But you should. No, I can't I can, say. I can connect you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> any feedback? No. No, no thoughts. Okay. Um, hey, the next topic, and I think that's that's probably one that's closer to uh, Abdul's heart. But uh, you know, this month, right? Uh, uh, there's two key players in tennis that are coming back. One is Rafa Nadal. He's been out for a year, and I think he's just in the second round of Brisbane, the Brisbane tournament now. And then there's Naomi Osaka. She got a baby, so they're both coming back, right? So my question is, uh, do they have a chance to win a Grand Slam this year, or maybe next year? I mean, Nadal may not play next year, but do they have a chance to win another Grand Slam before they um, 
before I guess, for example, before Nadal retires? Um, the way um, the way I usually see things is once a champion, always a champion. These are um, these folks have have conditioned their mind to believe that they can do anything that they put their mind to, right? And it is hard for them to make a decision to come back not believing that they cannot achieve the ultimate goal. And I'm quite sure that both of them at some point this year will come close or probably win, especially Nadal. I believe Nadal will definitely win. Um, he'll win something. Right. And I, I, yeah. It's just, I mean, they're just animals, right? And they're different. They, they'll sacrifice their body no matter what's happening to achieve that one ultimate goal. So once a, a champion to me, you're, uh, you're a champion. That's the only reason. I mean, we don't have to go too far. You just have to look at Serena. Serena came back. She didn't take, it didn't take her that much time. And she worked herself into shape during tournament, and she was the only consistent um, person on the on the in the women's league that actually went to several Grand Slams. Right? She might not have won it, but she stayed consistent with it. Yeah. And that Good tells story. me what, having that type of mindset is just hard to to not believe that they will achieve their goal. Yeah, and I remember there was a comment from uh, Rafa Nadal before he even played his first game now, before coming back. There was one player who said that was the hardest training session I've ever had, like recently, because he worked so hard. And this is a guy we haven't played for a year. And yet, you know, he played against, in training, right, against guys that have been on the tour for like the past 12 months. And they had a hard time playing against him. Right? And that's, yeah, it's just uh, because they win on the, they win with their mind first, right? I mean, if you go in all these leagues, like you go, whether it's Premier League, La Liga, Hockey League, all these players, there's always the top players. You can tell who they are, whether they, they blew their ATL or they got hurt or something happened and they stayed up, they stayed out one season, they come back the next year. They just come a different human being. Like they have something to prove, not to the world, but to themselves, right? They have that fire in them, right? Like you look at Adrian Peterson in the American Football League. Blue is ACL, came back the next day, the next year, and led. And he came back the earliest anyone has ever come back from an ACL repair. He came back and led the league in Russian, Russian title, and set the record. So that's just it's hard to see any of these players, whether they're playing hockey, whether they're playing football, whether they're playing American football, um, that they cannot achieve this goal. Because they're different. I mean, they're, yeah. It's, it's about the different will mindset. to win at all costs. They so, will do whatever it takes to win. And, and that's something yeah. that I recognized with working for one year with uh, um, our beloved Thierry Henry um they are in a world of their own it's it's yes scary it is scary it really is scary guys no joke it is and that's why i always say the the question is never what are you willing to sacrifice because these guys don't sacrifice it is what are you willing to endure is what about endurement what are you willing to endure to achieve your goal and they are willing to endure everything all elements no matter what it is they're not sacrificing. They already came. 
right? So that's, uh, and who, how many people are willing to endure all elements to achieve what they want to achieve? We're all human beings, we, we get into that self-preservation mode. And these guys don't know how because they've conditioned their mind from however, and I don't know if it's some of, some of them are born with it or some of them are just that way. Like look at Kobe, Kobe with his Achilles. I mean, you blow your Achilles and you go over there and freaking shoot free throws. That's, in, I mean, insane and make both of them and, and then walk off. How many people blow their Achilles and walk, right? So you look at these type of guys, I don't know if they're born with it or it's something that you condition yourself to be that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, any Anybody else has any comments on Nadal, Neymar Zaka, anybody else? I, uh, I, I actually went to the US Open uh, last year, 2023, uh, not as a, consultant or I went as a pure fan of the of the game and I got to watch um, Alcaraz and, and and Djokovic and and uh, Rublev uh, you know hit the ball whether in practice or or in actual games and man like I love Nadal too. you know he's he's a fantastic player but watching these other guys with that fire that they have that that like killer instinct that they've got like i don't i don't really don't know after a year out if nadal will be able to to uh, potentially he'll he'll probably compete with them he'll be on the same court with them but to like win it again or lift the trophy again i don't know like djokovic is crazy i don't know if anybody has watched that 60 minutes uh, interview yeah. like he's in he's insane he really is like <laughs> You know, at, and, and and for him to do what he's doing at his age and and uh you know doing it most recently at the at the u.s open like that that was that was ridiculous rid ridiculous you know you could see he was he was playing against a ferocious guy um who was like you know he was i mean djokovic was double his age almost and and you know you could see that he he was at, towards the end, he was toying with him. It was just like, yeah, I got you. I got you in my pocket, you know? Djokovic? Yeah, Djokovic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know? So it's it's just... Um, and, and Alcaraz is just uh, on a, on a, in a in a whole other stratosphere too, you know? He's... Wow, you know? So will, will Nadal be able to? I don't know. He'll probably compete with them, but I... I, did I did you hear the comment that Djokovic made when he beat uh, Akarai said, boy, you never give up. No, exactly. And he really doesn't. Right. And that, that reminds me of something that Nadal used to do back in his day, his young, like young days, like no matter where the ball would go, he would go, he would go for it every single time, like never mm -hmm. stop and okay, it's gone. I'm not going to reach it. No, he'll go, you know? And and that's what what we're talking about in terms of that killer instinct, you know, that ferociousness, the willing to win at all costs. But I'm thinking, right? So everybody's looking at Rafa Nadal. Oh my God, he's coming back. Everybody wants him to win. But then you got Djokovic who won 24 Grand Slam, and he's like, he wants to win like 27 of them. He doesn't care. So I think he's almost getting that's getting under his skin. I think that everybody's looking at Nadal, but he's like, I'm not finished, guys. You know? You see what I mean? 
Yes. It, 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 I'm, I'm looking at the clay. I'm looking at the clay because that's his best chance, right? Because mm -hmm. that's why he usually kill people on clay. Even I mean, even Novak, as great as he is, I'm just looking at the clay, the clay uh, surface for Nadal. That I'm thinking that's where if he's gonna win, that's what he'll that's what he'll win at. Right? But then he's gonna be the Alcaraz now, well, Alcaraz, which is the next big thing for clay. You know what I mean? So it's gonna be yeah. tough, right? Um, it won't be easy. I mean, and tickets it's going to be very interesting. Tickets for the U.S. Open are ridiculously expensive, by the way. Just uh, like uh, wanted to throw that out there. And even if you have the ticket, if you want to upgrade to like go and watch uh, another game on the main, uh, like to watch Alcaraz is nine hundred dollars. On top no of it, but yeah, it's it's crazy. It's insane, insane. Popular guy. I didn't. I, I never actually. I didn't know how much the tickets are going to these tournaments or these matches. I've never. You wouldn't know. know. That much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other feedback before we end? Any other comments? No. Well, look, I want to thank you guys for your time today. It's always great uh, to talk to you guys. So uh, you guys have a great year ahead of uh, you know 2024. So thanks again. Thanks, Julian. Thank you, guys. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate everybody.